Hey guys, I'm Chelsea. And I'm Jessica. And this is The Hand That Feeds Us. All right. So I just want to open this episode by saying this fruit is bananas. And I hope that you're old enough that you've heard that song, everyone, um, and that my beautiful rendition makes it clear what I'm, what I'm referencing. But anyways, today we are going to be talking about bananas. But more than that, stay tuned. Don't check out on me yet. Bananas are complex and interesting fruit. It's um, really exciting stuff. Yes. <laughs> so this all started, it's this bizarre topic that I've chosen, all started because I was reading my Reese Witherspoon book club book. <laughs> the house in the pines <laughs> and they have this reference to like Guatemala and this like big fruit company and the CIA and just like in- intense intrigue. Right. And I read that and I'm like, this definitely is real. This definitely happened. This is ringing a bell. I don't know why, but like, this is a real thing and we're going to delve into it. Cause this is going to be an interesting topic and it does not disappoint you guys. So stay tuned with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> So basically, a little bit of background just to like set the scene. Uh, 1870s, you've got this guy, Miner, which is a cool name, I think. Miner C. Keith. He's like the banana king of Costa Rica. Um, And then you've also got, oh my gosh, I can't remember his name. Lorenzo Dow Baker. Sorry, his name was less cool to me. Didn't remember it. He um, started the Boston Fruit Company, and he's the first to start importing bananas to the United States. 1899, Keith and Baker joined together and they make the United Fruit Company. And so like with this merger, they have this whole like vertical integration takeover of the banana industry. They um, not only are they producing the bananas, but they own like the railways, the telegraph lines, the housing facilities for workers, the ports in the producing countries, a steamship fleet, the distribution network in the United States. They just like they take over. Um, And then, you know, it's kind of interesting to me that bananas are such a thing in the United States, right? This like fruit from far away, like why is it that it's everywhere every day? People are always eating it. It seems like it should be more of like a a rarity, right? Um, Well, they went bananas on the... I can't. I'm laughing at my own dad jokes. They went bananas on the marketing. So they were putting out like pamphlets. They supposedly gave out like free textbooks to... Uh, school kids with like banana, like pro banana themes in them. And they were putting out like cookbooks. They had doctors in the twenties, like that they paid to talk about the nutrition, um, nutritional virtue of bananas. And so they're, they were telling people like having doctors say babies need to eat mashed bananas. Like it was like, they were just throwing it out there everywhere at the American people. My favorite thing that I found though was this ad in 1945 for bananas. So apparently they knew what celiac disease was back in the day, which surprised me. And there was this researcher who found that if kids with celiac ate only bananas and milk, their celiac got better because there's no gluten. But like they didn't know why. They're just like, wow, bananas, the miracle fruit. So the United Fruit Company puts out this ad and it's like, please rush this box. It contains bananas for a sick child. And this was all like World War II era. And you could apparently get a prescription that you had to have bananas despite like rationing um, if you had celiac. 
and there's like this picture of like a one-year-old child and it's like she has celiac and must have bananas to keep alive and I don't know I just that like tickled me I was like that's some intense marketing right there (laughs) yeah a plus a plus marketing actually (laughs) yeah so they were great at marketing uh a little bit more dubious and like you know uh, how they interacted with the local populations and countries where they were making their banana or growing their bananas. So that's where we start getting into a little bit of the controversy here. So we've got um, first, like one of the things that are kind of notorious for, if you will, is um, 1928, uh, workers, uh, United Fruit Company workers in Colombia organize a strike. And like the U.S. government comes in. They're like, nah. You you can't do this to our United Fruit Company. So you're going to do something about this or we might invade you. And then um, the Colombian army ultimately ends up deciding like, okay, we're going to like fire like guns at the banana workers and bystanders. Um, unknown number of people end up being killed like somewhere like a thousand plus is like the estimate, but there's different estimates depending on the source. Um so that gets a little wild. That actually, apparently, that whole day, the banana massacre, as they call it, inspired 100 Years of Solitude, which is a Nobel Prize winning book. Um, anyways, I digress. So um, back to what was talked about in the House of Pines, the House in the Pines, which got me on this whole like journey to begin with. So it's 1952. Um, Guatemala has this guy in charge, Arbenz, and he decides that I'm probably butchering his name, but anyways, he decides they're going to have some like reform. They're going to, um, go ahead and take a bunch of, uh, acres away from landowners, like the United Fruit Company, like things that aren't under cultivation, but they own and give it to around a hundred thousand families in Guatemala that don't have land. So they're, they're taking like hundreds of thousand acres from United Fruit Company. Uh, 1953, they lost like 234,000 acres. 1954, they lost 173,000 acres. And Guatemala is like, we'll compensate you. And they're like, based on your tax records, it's worth about $1.185 million. So we'll pay you that. And they're like, absolutely not. It's worth like, I don't know, it's like 18 or $19 million, I think they were claiming. And they're like, mm. Guess you should have been more transparent on your tax records. Mm, yeah, there it is. Nobody ever. <laughs> gosh, that's like such a tale as old as time. They're like, they, they want to lie on their tax records until like it bites them. And then they're like, oh, no, it's worth way more than that. And you're like, mm, that's not what you said. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, United Fruit Company, they're not going to take this. They go to like the Guatemalan uh, court system. They're trying to fight this. Guatemala's like, no. Then the United States gets involved. Once again, they're like, my boy, United Fruit Company, you can't do this to them. Um, so they they go to Guatemala and they're like, no, you're not going to do this. Like, we demand that you pay them $15 million instead. Guatemala says, absolutely not. So it's getting more and more intense between like 1953, 1954. And then ultimately the U.S. is like, you know, this Arbenz guy pretty sure he's a communist sympathizer or a communist and he is a danger to the western hemisphere so they bring in the cia and the cia starts this whole like operation they like start training um like guatemalan rebel forces they start providing um like they do like dropping supplies to them they they do this whole like psyop thing and they have like radio messages going out to intimidate like communist sympathizers they're dropping like weapons and then 
releasing um, like data saying like, oh, it's the Soviets. We found Soviet weapon caches here in Guatemala. They're like in bed with the Soviets. Um, and they're trying to like, what? Over fruit, right? Like, I'm so confused. I'm like, this is for the United Fruit Company, which at this point is not a U.S. government agency. Like, well, they they also like this is like the 50s when the U.S. was like real riled up about communism, like McCarthyism, all that stuff is going on, right? So, it, technically, like, why it, do they say it's about like? Oh, sorry. I was gonna say, why does the U.S. government care so much? Like, I mean, this is just like another company, right? Like, why are they trying to help them so much? They're like, we're gonna borderline go to war for you guys. Like, they had to have been getting something out of this. I don't know about like that part, but other than like, yeah, it's like a huge U.S. company. But like the the, the reason they put forth in like the official documents is like threat of communism. Okay, so they're they're claiming communism, but it, it really does. It makes you wonder. Like, I'm like, was this like them just freaking out over communism or was there some bigger something or another going on with the U.S. government and this company? Because I'm like, dang, man, there's a lot of other companies that have fallouts in foreign countries and you don't see the U.S. government like going to war. My gosh, dropping yeah. weapons like what? <laughs> I mean, the 50s was pretty wild and like how they were yeah. reacting to communism. So I don't know. But yeah, I'm sure there was like. I'm sure it didn't hurt that it was such a huge company and, you know, it was, but anyways, I found this, um, office of the historian report through like this state department website where they like talk about everything they did as part of this, as part of this op. And they like break down their budget. The CIA spent $3 million in 1954 on this whole like coup. And if I didn't get to this part yet, cause I went off on like a, a tangent, they did end up overthrowing um, Arbenz and he ends up like nullifying all these reform laws and like the United Fruit Company gets their land back and all that. I'm like so annoyed. <laughs> I'm like, why? Like, oh my God, I can't. I have so many thoughts and feelings about this. I'm like, the for, oh my gosh, I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to formulate a thought. They were trying to give the land to Guatemalan families, right, that belonged to the United Fruit Company, and the U.S. government was like, nah, give it back. So then they, like, straight up, like, took everything from them and then overthrew Guatemalan government and kept it mm -hmm. for a U.S. entity in Guatemala. Like, how is that? I'm just so, I'm so blown by that. That blows my mind. It was pretty wild. And then they, I guess a lot of people feel that this, event is what led to the Guatemalan Civil War, which started, I think it was like 1960. They had this like 36 year long, super like violent civil war, all kinds of atrocities happening. Um, and like, I, I guess the, the consensus is like, yeah, they trace it back to like this destabilization that happened with the coup. Yeah. Anyways, so not just bananas, also international like Coups and the CIA and like pretty wild, right? Um, so you're like, okay, like why do I care? United Fruit Company doesn't exist anymore. It does. They're just now called Chiquita. They became Chiquita in 1990. Oh my. Okay. Yeah, and you're like, okay, fine, but like, is Chiquita having coups? Well, no. However, in 2007, they did plead guilty to making payments to a terrorist organization. 
So from 1997 to 2004, they were making payments to this paramilitary group in Colombia, the United Self-Defense Forces of Colombia, which since 2001 has been labeled a terrorist organization by the United States. Did they say why? (laughs) So uh, Chiquita said that they were victims of like blackmail and extortion. And they felt that if they didn't make these payments, they would risk violence against their workers. Um, it, it is interesting though. Cause like, if you read like the documents they they talk about how their, their legal counsel in like 2001 was telling them like, guys, like this is illegal. They're a terrorist organization. You yeah. can't do this. And they were like, mm, we're going to do it anyway. Um, with that, like, it makes you wonder too, like, and I had a thought before this, like the Guatemalan civil war that you were talking about before that, like the $3 million that were paid to people. Can you take it back to that really fast? The $3 million. So that was taxpayer money from the U S coming out. Yeah, and being I guess paid. so. Cause that was the CIA. That was the CIA budget for that okay. um, operation. Right. Like for a, for a private corporation. And so now for like fast them. forward. Huh? <laughs> For communism, Chelsea. Oh, my God. (laughs) Okay, communism. Okay. No, no, no. No, no. Mm -hmm. Depends on who's talking. But yes, for communism, you know, hey, taxpayer money, I'm taking it with a tax paid, you know, entity, CIA, and we're going to go and we're going to fix this. And mm, okay. And then you mentioned like fast forward, like Shakita, then it's established in 1990. And this is, it kind of sounds like, oh, it's renamed. Kind of sounds like this is happening again, right? Like they're paying money, quote unquote, to a terrorist organization to protect their workers. But like, is that true? I mean, do they have evidence of that? Do they have letters? Do they have or is this like they're paying for something else that, you know, they're actually working in cahoots mm-hmm. with them? I'm I'm so confused by that. Like the money. Oh, where's, so where's like, the money so coming the money's, from and why? The money's coming from Chiquita, not not the U.S. government in this case. The U.S. government made them pay $25 million in fines over this event. Um, okay. And apparently it is, like, in their books. They had it labeled as, like, security, I think is what it said in the article. So, like, okay. so they apparently actually outed themselves about this, but then kept making the payments. So they, like, went to the Department of Justice and were like, so we've been doing this. And, like some of their board members had been just like, we need to pull out of Columbia. Like we can't be paying these terrorist organizations. And they were like, yeah, but like we make a lot of money in Columbia and these payments are pretty small. Uh, we're going to keep doing it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. So like, and that's the other thing. Like if you're trying to protect your people and then the government's like, Hey, you can't pay the terrorists. Like, I mean, like, and likely giving them alternatives of ways to protect their people. And they're like, no, no, we'll just keep paying the terrorists. Like, I'm like, how is that even humanly? Like, how are they allowed to do that? (laughs) They've been like sued by families too. I think of like people who were like killed and disappeared by, you know, these groups. Um, I think there's like another pending lawsuit. They got sued in like, I want to say it was like 2011 or something, but I don't think that one, I don't know what the outcome was with that one. But anyways, they pled guilty to this one. You know, whether you think that they're victims or a little shady or a combination of the two, there's still all kinds of wild stuff happening. So all this to say, like when you go to buy something, like I know we talk a lot about like whether it's healthy for you or health or not, like there's so much more that goes into it. There's like the environmental aspect of like, you know, raising something on the other side of the world and shipping it to us. 
there's like all these international relations that start getting involved when you're dealing with like a billion different countries and like huge like export import systems. And then human rights, because like human rights violations, I mean, they can happen in the United States too. I've read articles with that, but a lot of times, a lot of this is happening. You, there's so much to think about when you're choosing what to buy because the, the, the ripple effect of those choices is huge. Um, so want to go kind of like switch gears a little bit and talk about kind of where we're importing from um, and then some of the concerns with where we're importing from. So number, they break it down into fresh, frozen, and dried bananas. We're just going to talk about like fresh bananas for ease. Um, so Guatemala is still like our number one import source at like 41.7%. So the scene of the whole, uh, the coup that we just discussed. <laughs> Next up, we've got Costa Rica, Ecuador, Honduras, and Mexico. Um, so Ecuador, there are definitely some concerns with Ecuador um, and bananas. So if you start looking into like banana trade, you're going to start seeing stuff like child labor. Um, and then, but the big thing that's referenced and that pops up is this 2002 Human Rights Watch report uh, that found widespread child labor on plantations in Ecuador, like workers as young as eight, hazardous conditions, like getting sprayed with agrochemicals, using machetes, dragging heavy loads of bananas. Um, so I'm like, oh, wow, like that's intense. Like surely there's going to be more new stuff like since 2002. Like <laughs> hasn't anybody like followed up on this? Not really that I can find. They, they do interestingly have this um, U.S. Department of Labor has a child labor and forced labor report. And um, I looked at like, you know, all those top companies or top countries that we're importing from that we talked about. And the only one that still is showing child labor with bananas is Ecuador. Um, the other ones have child labor in other industries. But as far as like documented child labor and uh, bananas, Ecuador is still um, it's still popping up in the 2022 findings. Uh, but they'll even say like our ability to track this is kind of limited because Ecuador itself is not doing any kind of surveys on child labor right, and hasn't yeah. in a number of years. So as far as the scope, it's difficult to say just because like it's hard to track They're you know, I mean, this is obviously something that people are not like being super transparent about. So mm -hmm. the level it's happening, we don't know, but they are still finding child labor with bananas specifically in Ecuador, at least. So another thing to consider when you're buying your banana and it's super cheap and affordable, like, eh, was it cheap and affordable because they're paying a child a fraction of what they'd pay an adult to raise said bananas? So they're just like, the banana is just concerning across a lot of, a lot of, you know, things. So the other thing is we rely on a single banana variety. So like almost all the bananas you buy in the store are Cavendish bananas. And the only reason we have Cavendish bananas is because in the 50s and 60s, the, the Big Mike or the, the Gros Michel <laughs> was um, replaced because it uh, was killed out by Fusarium Wilt Race 1, and it just like wiped out all the banana plantations. But so like the bananas we eat are seedless, and they're all like sterile. Uh, so they're all just like clones of each other. They don't like reproduce through sexual reproduction. So they're all just clones of each other. So when something... <laughs> arrives that they're susceptible to it just like wipes them out so wait there's a banana with seeds in it that exists that you can buy and eat in other places is that true 
they're not like edible, they said, but like wild bananas apparently generally have like these big seeds, but then they'll occasionally have these like sterile ones that they, you can then manually um, propagate to have like edible bananas. Interesting. I never knew that. Okay. Yeah. And it's like kind of wild that we only use this like one variety, which makes us super susceptible to the whole like the whole banana industry just being wiped out by disease. When like in Asia where they originated, there's like thousands of seedless bananas that exist and that people can like eat and buy. And they say arguably taste way better. The Cavendish supposedly is a rather bland banana but it's resistant to this Fusarium wilt race one that wiped out the bananas in the fifties and sixties. And that's why they started using the Cavendish. Okay. So it's, Um, it's just more easily cultivated on a large scale, essentially. No, it's just resistant to this one particular disease that eradicated all the other bananas in the fifties and sixties. Oh, okay. So that's like like a super banana, but it's not, it's just this one thing that they Oh, yeah. No, it's highly susceptible to all the other diseases. Oh, okay, great. (laughs) It's just resistant to this one thing. Um, So they started, but now there's, there's like, like eight major banana diseases, which you should Google pictures of, what is it? Banana blood disease. It's real gnarly looking. (laughs) Oh, okay. But the main, the main concern right now is um, Fusarium wilt TR4. Uh, So it's now like wiping out bananas, right? And it's spreading from like continent to continent. It has been detected in South America and Colombia and Peru, but it's like pretty isolated right now. But apparently all the banana experts say it's not a matter of like if, but when it's going to just like decimate the banana uh, industry. What's it called again? Fusarium? Fusarium wilt TR4. Huh. Okay, I'll have to look that up. And the, yeah, and then there's all these like funguses and stuff that they're susceptible to, which leads us into our next segment of the show. Just like mm-hmm. the insane amount of agrochemicals that are involved in banana. Um, Why? It always comes to this. I can't. Oh, God. Yes. So it's like wild. So they do, there's like a couple different ways that chemicals get brought into banana raising. So they've got these nemat- nematocides, nematocides. I don't, they're to kill nematodes and roundworms. And they like inject them and like sprinkle these granules into the ground um, to keep the nematodes from destroying the root systems. And then you've got, they've got these banana bags they like so these plastic bags they put around the bananas on the trees and they just like fill them with pesticides to keep like bugs off the bananas and then you've got like the fungicides that they spray aerially like every week year round it's like wild it's a lot of pesticides bags full of Um, pesticides they're full of fungicides and yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so the one of the big um, like fungicides they use is mancozeb. Pronouncing these things is always really fun. Mancozeb, yeah. I think. So reports say they spray it anywhere from like 52 to 90 times a year. So this is like they're like going out and crop dusting like every week with this stuff. Um, and then like the EPA would say like you have to wait 24 hours before going back into the field after this happens. And if you don't, it's linked to tumors, birth defects, cell mutations, thyroid mutations, um, can affect brain development of fetuses in pregnant women. And of course, 
like you have like tons of people living right next to these banana plantations. And then you've got, it's not just landing on the crops. So that's a whole thing. Um, now, um, so like the mancozeb that we we're just talking about, that is like the main fungicide they're using. And it is an endocrine disruptor as well. So it was banned in Europe in 2021, but is still allowed in the U.S. and is being sprayed weekly on the bananas on average. Um, and then like fungicides apparently are also applied after they're harvested. They put them in like fumigation chambers before they ship them as well. So just like tons of fungicides are happening. I just like don't under I I remember asking you like okay so what's the deal with spraying after like what how why is that so necessary I feel like they've they have loaded these things I mean there should not be a fungus even <laughs> remotely close to this banana but then you were like oh but the banana is like a little daffodil it's just like oh it's a very sensitive little flower it is yeah, they require a it's just wild to me. I'm like, these things are not meant to be grown on a large scale and shipped everywhere because to keep them alive requires and beautiful. Cause that's the other thing you like, some of it is to preserve the aesthetics cause you can't be having like little spots all over it and stuff. Like there's something called freckle and it creates little brown spots all over the banana. And I think they were saying they'll still like eat them locally. So I don't think it keeps you from being able to eat it, but it makes mm -hmm. it like, you know, not appealing. Well I feel like this is probably why when you go to the store, like the bananas are straight green. Like they're like, mm -hmm. yeah, this to them as like raw as possible because it's going to quickly change and I guess attract fungus. Oh my gosh. I'm like, okay guys, <laughs> maybe, maybe this isn't the fungus isn't the problem. Maybe it's the fact that you're importing so many bananas at such a large scale that they're, you know, really hard to protect. Ugh. Well, and there's only one kind. So they're all like, once a fungus gets there, it's just like spreads to everyone. Yeah. Um, and then, so one of the, I want to talk a little bit about one of the insecticides they use too, because there's like an interesting like US side note with that. So um, chlorpyrifos, which I'm pretty sure we talked about on our endocrine, endocrine disruptor episode as well. It's one of the insecticides that's registered to be used. It was... Um, banned in the EU in 2020 because of like significant detrimental effects on children's health that is suspected. So um, U.S. side note, the EPA banned chlorpyrifos in 2021. So that went, it went into effect like February 28th, uh, 2022, but then it got overturned. So there was a federal court on November 2nd, 2022, 2023 overturned the EPA ban. And they're like, well, in one of your memos, you said there were like 11 situations where it could like maybe be modified use or whatever. So why don't you consider a partial ban instead? Rethink about it. And like the EPA is over here like, um, because it's been found to limit an enzyme, which leads to neurotoxicity and is associated with potential neurodevelopmental effects in kids. But like, it just blew my mind. Like, I feel like the EPA like most of the time we're like, why haven't you banned this yet? And right. in this situation, they actually did. And then the courts are like, but nah. <laughs> I mean, that tells me big money sitting somewhere inside that decision. That That's what that tells me. Like what incentive did the U.S. courts have other than these people who are using chlorpyrifos? It's not just bananas. I mean, obviously this is being used in a multitude of areas, probably not even just on like food and stuff. When we talked in the endocrine disrupting chemical, um, episode I was like a lot of these like crossover into other chemicals and other objects and other things 
that tells me that in that decision, someone somewhere was like, "Mm, you're not going to do that because we have all this money and we need to keep making all this money. And they were like, oh, you know, it's not that bad. Did it? I mean, I can't assume, you know, call me a conspiracy theorist because whatever. But I mean, there's reasons people do this stuff. Somebody doesn't just like wake up some judge and be like, you know what? We like those chemicals. Let's keep using them instead. Even though we already overturned them, even though you already did all the evidence, you already showed us all the effects. Nah. I mean, that just doesn't happen, like, unless there's a reason, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, because it's wild to me. I'm like, okay, so this is, like, toxic to the neurodevelopment of kids. And, like, we're apparently not arguing about that at this point. Like, we, and, but you're like, oh, but, like, uh, maybe. I think maybe we should still use it. They were saying something about, like, well, in situations where it might not, um, a lot of kids might not be exposed to it or something. I'm like, Why? 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 We don't like why? Oh my god. I can't. Yeah, it's very upsetting. That kind of yeah, that just blew my mind. So we had to we had to go off on that for a second. Um so yeah, so pesticides. We're using some wild stuff, some wild fungicides. We're using a ton of it every day, year round. Like it's it's pretty insane. Um, as far as like the banana culturing or whatever. And then they talk about all the different ways. Basically, it's not just on the plants. So you've got the spray drift when they're spraying. And um, they, were fi- they, were, they were doing a study where they looked at these like mountainous areas that were like protected lands a few hundred kilometers away from a banana plantation. Still found pesticides there. Um, you've got like runoff leaching. And, you know, they look at like the streams near these areas and they find that the macro invertebrate community, invertebrate community which is any small organism without a backbone that's visible to the naked eye. So they found that this community was being negatively affected by pesticides from banana and pineapple plantations. Um, You know, there's like runoff to water. They're seeing like fish dying. And like some of this stuff, there's not enough studies to say conclusively it's like one thing or the other. But they're like right after they spray this thing, when there's a lot of rain, the fish die. Like, okay, <laughs> probably related, right? Gosh. Um, and then talking about like the chlorpyrifos again that they put in these like plastic banana bags, they found that 90% of that um, evaporates out and is lost to like the atmosphere within 10 days. So pretty wild. Right. <laughs> it always so goes a pot- to this place where I'm like, oh, this is so depressing. On a positive note, they did a field study comparing like organic and conventional plantations and the organic plantations did have more of like the macro invertebrates and biodiversity in their soil. So there are things we can do to make it better. Um, Good. (laughs) But more depressing stuff. Back to the depressing stuff. So like the, the human effect is like really sad. Like they were doing studies on these communities that live like right outside the banana plantations. And so they were looking, like in this study, it was in Costa Rica, looking at the specific Matina County. And they found they had um, 33 primary schools in that county. 55% were less than 200 meters from a banana plantation. 30% were less than 100 meters. Which, like when we're talking about all the spray drift that's happening, the kind of chemicals that they're using, the effects they're having, that's super alarming. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're doing like studies with pregnant women and children in the area. They're finding um, like metabolites of the insecticides and fungicides in their urine. They're seeing like increased um, 
like prevalence of like autism, ADHD, learning disabilities in the communities around banana plantations. Um, it's just super sad. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I mean, talking about the kids, like being exposed there, like think of how much bananas are marketed to children in America too. Like, I mean, it's coming here and it's like every single little, like, I mean, sometimes it's the first thing that they recommend that they eat like a mashed banana or even like, you know, the rice cereal. Like, I feel like that's within that, like mashed food group where, I mean, it's in everything. Like you look at baby formulas and foods that are created for or like early feeding with fruits and vegetables. And it's like, there's banana in almost every single one because that's such a, you know, natural sweetener that companies like to use to make it palatable. Thank you, United Fruit Company. Because remember, they were paying the doctors to say like, mashed bananas should be fed to all your babies. Right. And now look, and you're, you know, you're showing all this evidence that's like, oh, they're full of neurotoxic chemicals and we're mashing in all of our baby foods. And then like, and even this, I used to eat a smoothie every day. Like it was like a thing. I thought I was being super healthy and I was like, oh, I have a smoothie every day. And my sweetener for that smoothie would be a banana and I'd mash it in there. And I'm like, how much of this neurotoxicity was I being exposed to at that level? And even still, I buy bananas every week. I mean, that's gonna be a different story after this episode. We'll talk about that later. But like, you know, I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Well, I will say on a positive note, they haven't found significant contamination of the actual fruit. So for like consumer risk, they do think it's limited. So once they like, if they test like already peeled bananas, they didn't, they found like a couple fungicides, but like they didn't find, which I mean, it's still not great. They're not saying there's nothing, but like they're not finding a significant amount of contamination to the fruit itself. Like it's all on the peel for the most part. And they don't think there's a, a significant effect to consumers. So that's good. But, well, you know, we're poisoning our earth. And unless, unless you compost and you take that banana peel mm. and you stick that banana peel in your soil, like I'm about to start doing. And oh my gosh. Would, yes. It's every, that's what I'm telling you. It's everywhere. And then it breaks I down. I never thought of that. And then you're growing more plant life in there from that banana peel. And it's, I mean, it's all going into the new food that you're growing and creating. I mean, I can't tell you how many, like, accounts I see on Instagram that are like, oh, is your soil showing this in your plants? Crush up an egg uh, shell or whatever and sprinkle Mm -hmm. it on top. Or it's like, oh, dry your banana peels. They create like a dust, sprinkle it Mm -hmm. on top and it'll like increase some sort of nutrient density of your plant life. And I'm like, oh my, I'm looking at this and I'm like, and that's just sitting in your soil and who knows how long it's there for. It's going into all the food you're growing. I mean, it's just, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's probably there forever. Because they were doing studies on speckled caimans, I think it was. And like the ones obviously closer to the banana plantations, like their the pesticide level was higher. And they don't know if it's from like water contamination or like contamination of what they're eating. But they were finding things like DDT, which aren't used anymore, but it's still like in the environment. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you peel that banana peel, you know, I mean, that that banana peel is going on your hands. Unless you're washing your hands, you're picking up your baby spoon, you're feeding it to them, you know, you're tossing it in your trash can that's going into the landfill that's, you know, got runoff running through. I mean, it's in everything. And even if you do wash your hands, you peel that banana. Oh my gosh, this just goes on so many levels. So meta. And then you wash your hands. Guess what you're washing off into your water. It's like, wow. Wow. 
Well, I hadn't thought about those depressing thoughts. So thank you, Chelsea. I'm sorry. I mean, that's where my mind takes me. And this isn't to say we should all just like start panicking and be like, ah, we've been exposed to this our whole lives, right? Like we're still here. We're still standing. That doesn't mean that it's okay. It just means that it's like, this really does it. I mean, one thing impacts everything and we don't Mm -hmm. recognize it immediately until we think at that level. And then we're like, oh my goodness. So yes, feel some relief to an extent. But then also like remain vigilant and try to like change it, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's, it's wild. And like, this is like total like digression for a second, but like I'm about to get into, well, well, it's not really a digression because it's going to kind of lead me where we're going. Like I'm about to talk about some of these like health consequences that have come up with like previous um, pesticides and stuff. And so many of it, so many of them are tied into like fertility or cancers of the reproductive organs or like, and I just find it really interesting. Like I know there's so many factors that go into this and we don't know why, but like all these like fertility concerns that are like popping up, like, yeah, I know there's like so many factors that could be contributing to it, but I just find it interesting that like all these chemicals that we like spray heavily seem to be tied into that, the endocrine disruption. But anyways, so just like examples of like crazy things that have happened. So like sixties, they were using this copper based, um, like, I think, I don't know if it's like a fungicide. It was to control cigatoka. Can't remember if cigatoka is a fungus or a what. But anyways, they were finding all this lung disease in workers. And at first they thought it was tuberculosis, but then they later realized it's copper buildup in the lungs of like the spraying workers. Mm-hmm. And then 1970s, we've got this n- nematicide, nematicide. I haven't decided how you say it. Um, DBCP. And I guess there's been lawsuits to like the big... Um, fruit companies over this, but they would apply it as granules and then it caused sterilization of 1500 workers. They've done analysis of like the Costa Rican cancer registry. And they were looking at from like 1981 to 1993, and they saw high rates of respiratory ovarian and prostate cancers specifically in those banana producing regions that was not matched in other like similar, like rural areas of Costa Rica. Um, another retrospective cancer study they, um, in Costa Rica, they found elevated incidences of melanoma, penile cervical cancer, and um, leukemia that they mm. think is linked to the high pesticide use. And you're like, okay, well, this is in the past. We're not using those things. But I think we keep seeing this over and over again, right? Like, we're like, oh, we use this thing. It causes horrible human health outcomes. We switch to something else. We use it, horrible human health outcomes. And I, I feel like it's, it's important to note these things because, yeah, we can say we don't use those anymore. But what about everything else we're using now that we mm-hmm. don't have? Like, we can't do a retrospective study on it now yet because it's new. Like, wh- what are we going to find from all these things we're still using? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's, it's a whole system honestly like it's like like you were just saying we talk about this I think in every episode and a big pivotal moment in understanding that for me was when we mentioned BPA in one of the previous episodes as liner on cans um and I think that was the endocrine disrupting chemical episode but it was like oh you know shop BPA free da 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 well they're using something else now to replace that I mean it's you know and we just don't know what it is yet we don't know what the effects are like everything you just said so it's not necessarily that BPA free is better it's just that you know they found a way around this system it's it's so frustrating and yeah I mean it it is so frustrating and you know I think just to kind of bring it full circle too so we've been talking a lot about the chemicals that are used in 
you know, bananas and stuff like that. And you might be thinking, well, like we don't grow bananas here. Like those chemicals, like they're being sprayed somewhere else, which should still care because it's affecting other people and their families. But like this kind of stuff is happening in the U.S. too. Maybe not on like the level that we're spraying on bananas, but they've looked at studies of rural communities like that are located next to farmland that spray. And they're seeing like detecting some of these similar things in pregnant women where they're having like pesticides in their like urine samples and stuff like that. So, you know, or like we talk about like these like these kind of like heat maps are making for Parkinson's now. And it seems to be linked to like being in like rural communities where they're spraying. Um, so I don't, I just think it's wild that we're doing this. We like know it's having an impact. We just don't realize like how much or what it is for certain chemicals. And we're continuing to be like, well, we're going to keep doing it and see what oh, happens. Yeah. It's like, at what point, what is it going to take for it to stop? You know, or like, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take. And then at the same time, double-edged sword, it's like, well, if it does stop, what are like, how are people going to eat? We don't know how to grow our own food, which is the whole reason we got into this world. We were like, you know, if they do stop spraying and they can't cultivate at such a large scale, what happens to the reason we needed all that food in the first place? What happens to that? I mean, you hope that you have a replacement, I guess, before then, right? Which is why we're so gung-ho. Everybody needs to learn these skills. Well, yeah, because I think the only way that it does stop or at least like decrease is you need less demand for this like monoculture. So you can't have to feed the entire world through like commercial agriculture. So I think, you know, the more obviously like this, it would take huge changes in like civilization to see any significant change in how they're doing this. But like, I mean, the more people who are pulling back that demand for these like monoculture, highly sprayed, like conventionally farmed crops. And like the more people who are doing for themselves and not creating a demand for the system, I feel like the more likely we are to see change. Like, do I think enough people are going to make that change that the industry changes? I don't know. I'm I'm skeptical that that would happen, but, um, that's what we're here to kind of like push the idea of, you know, like one, just being aware. And if you are going to consume these things, know what you're consuming, what you're supporting. But also consider like, what can I perhaps produce on my own or get from someone local that I know what they're doing? Um, so as far as what can we do when it comes to bananas? So there are organic options. So there are, that would involve less pesticides. But from what I've seen with it, there's really only like two main countries that produce like all the organic bananas. I think it was Dominican Republic. And I don't remember the second. Um but they can like only be grown in certain limit, like very specific limited areas of the world. They have to be like at like higher elevation because they can't be in these same like tropical settings that are going to require all of like the intensive inputs with chemicals. So that's an option, but it's certainly not an option that's going to like completely change the banana industry because there aren't enough places to grow organic bananas that you could grow them all organically. Um, but when you're choosing, that's an option. The The U.S. does apparently produce some bananas, right? Which, um, but you're not really going to see them very often at the store. And I will say like Hawaii apparently grows bananas, which I mean, I guess should be obvious, but I hadn't really thought about it. But I saw them at the store. Uh, I was at Sam's yesterday and they had um, Hawaiian bananas and like the organic, um, like from South America imported bananas were 
South or Central America, I guess, actually. But anyways, they were three, um, like three ninety nine for like three pounds, whereas like the Hawaiian race ones were like six ninety nine for three pounds. So you're like, oh my gosh, that's like quite the discrepancy. But you know, I guess you have to take into account like probably no child labor going into. I mean, I hope not going into the the Hawaiian raised bananas. And you know, if you can pay a kid a fraction of what you can pay an adult, you can certainly lower your profit mark or lower your uh, your cost and overhead. Um, not saying that they're all doing that, but we do have evidence that like, it is a factor that's happening. Um, so yeah, you could have us source bananas, but once again, not going to be like a big scale, big picture replacement for what we've got going on in the banana industry. Um, really all of these things are more like what you can do on an individual level and look for. Um, I don't think any of these are like the answer for fixing the banana industry at large. Um, but you also have different certifications that you can look for on the bananas. So you've got like Fair Trade Rainforest Alliance. I don't know about you, but like I've always seen these on things and I'm like, okay, I assume that's like a good thing, but I don't really know what it means, you know? Yeah. Um, so I try to break that down some. And there, I mean, the the certification process is like super complex and it's different for like farmers versus producers versus like, so I'm not going to get into all of like the nitty gritty with that. We're going to talk more like big picture. So they're, they're very similar in what their goals are, right? Like, but like fair trade kind of comes at it from more of a, like lifting people out of poverty, ensuring a living wage in um, like influx of money into communities kind of perspective while also still being concerned with like the environment and things like that and sustainability, but more from the focus of like we, they like set a specific um, like minimum price for their products and they like provide stipends to the community, um, to like help, you know, raise people out of poverty essentially as the goal. Um, whereas like the rainforest Alliance started more from like a sustainability, stopping deforestation, decreasing pesticide kind of focus. Um, but now all, like they are also focused on, you know, trying to improve like workers' rights, human rights, like avoiding human rights violations, all those things. So they, they both approach like all of those categories. It's just Rainforest Alliance more from like a sustainability, like environmental standpoint, fair trade, more focused on like economic, raising people out of poverty standpoint. But both okay. have a lot of overlap. Um, as far as like cons, like I've seen like fair trade, people mention it costs a little bit more to get that certification. And there's certainly controversy surrounding like both of them. Like Fair trade, some study, conflicting info has been shown in studies. You know, some find that like it only improves like the economic standing of the farmer and not like the workers who are generally going to be in the worst situation to begin with financially. Mm -hmm. um, and then like same with Rainforest Alliance. It's like, okay, is it really causing improvements or is it not? And like some of that I, th I think goes into – this idea of like how much can you really oversee with like a third party certification? Cause you're not going to be there day in day out. You're going to have like specific audits. Like things are obviously going to be missed. Like there was this big scandal with, um, uh, I think it was in 2020 in 2022, 2023, something like that. Um, there were two big like tea plantations in Kenya that, um, the BBC made a documentary and found all these like sexual abuse um, concerns that were happening, a bunch of workers being like sexually abused by supervisors for years. Um, 
And, you know, one of those like tea companies was Unilever, which owned like Lipton. They've since sold to somebody else, but like, we're talking like big name tea companies that you've heard of and they were yeah. Rainforest Alliance certified. So there's all this scandal with like, okay, you're Rainforest Alliance certified and you have like a sex abuse scandal happening. Um, so, I mean, certainly neither of these certifications are going to be perfect. There's conflicting evidence in like how much positive change are they actually like creating um and like how much can you actually oversee with these third-party certifications how much money is it costing to get like started you know certainly cons but i think overall the mission is good whether you know like with most things is like the application turning out the way we want it to eh, conflicting evidence on that but that's kind of what they have good goals <laughs> yeah i mean definitely and i mean it's it, that that speaks to something like you said i mean it's a watering can against a forest fire, you know, and, and not mm -hmm. to minimize what their mission is and what they're doing. We need that just more so to show what they're up against. I mean, this is huge. This industry is massive and there's not only one of them. This is just strictly bananas. I mean, I can only imagine the amount of chaos going on in our agricultural world across the world, really everywhere. So yeah. I, I think it's really neat. I, I think the missions are cool. I think that it's awesome. There's somebody out there who's like, we're, let's try and do something because I'm sure they do make a huge change. It's just, you know, there's just so much of it. There's so much of it. And then it's like, well, what do we do? Like you're talking about organic and I'm like, okay, for me, like if I am buying that organic banana, like, and it is say fair trade and then like rainforest, you know, like all of that checks out and everything. Is it, is there still something else going on with it that we don't know about that? Like, you know, like, I mean, cause they're mm -hmm. only able to catch in so much information on all of this. They're not there every day, like you just said. And so I think it's just hard. And we were talking about this before we started recording, but the bananas and exotic fruit, right? Like <laughs> this is yeah. not something I, I, that I've been buying for years. Every single week I go to the grocery store and I'm not even thinking about that. I'm just picking up bananas and buying them. And I'm like, you know, thanks to back in the fifties when they were like, you need to eat this every day. All of us just have this so integrated in our diet, but we don't really need it. There's so many other things we could do other than eating bananas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think my takeaway from all of this is like kind of what, you, what you're talking about. Like we have gotten used to this idea of like, and like, I'm certainly guilty of this too. Like, hello, avocados and like, and bananas. But like, yeah. I like, and like, don't even get me started on avocados. I was originally going to talk about that too. And how like the cartel is like controlling avocados in Mexico. It's wild. But that has to wait for another episode because <laughs> this was getting like, it was getting too big deforestation, the cartel, like, okay, we're going like, to do a, a Jessica episode on avocados. That's going yeah, like, to happen. Lack of genetic diversity, susceptible to just eradication by pests. But anyways, where, oh my gosh, where was I? I was talking, oh yeah. So like, I also like, I'm used to like this idea of I can have anything from anywhere, anytime I want. And like, it's great right? Like, I love that I can do that. However, when you take a step back and you start thinking about it, you're like, this is actually not great. <laughs> because yeah. while my taste buds are happy, like, like the environmental impact, like the fact that we're just like, I don't I, like there's so much room for abuse when you create like this cash crop, right? That is going like all over the world. And it's in some of these countries where they may not have as much oversight and regulation, like, but there's money to be made. Like, then there's going to be 
like abuse of that. Unfortunately, like that's what we just see with humanity. So like it, it gets me thinking like, okay, like should we really be able to go any day of the year to the store and buy something from around across the world? Like, is that really the best solution? Probably not. Is that what people want to hear? Probably not. But like, you know, we only have eggnog in the grocery store at Christmas and people are just fine. So like maybe we don't need to all be able to buy bananas every day. Like, I don't know. I think like currently I buy them like every week and I'm like, okay, maybe we need to like, maybe I need to buy the expensive Hawaiian bananas and, um, only by like, cause I'm in Hawaii. So local sourcing and all that for context for those who have not been listening all along, but in, you know, I get them occasionally cause they're now going to be like twice as expensive and maybe we get some other fruit in between or like, right. you know, yeah. It's just, and I, I don't know. It makes you think. Yeah. There's so many other replacements. Like you were just saying, I've been thinking a lot lately about like the seasonality of all of this anyway, Mm -hmm. not just like, I mean, you're bringing such a bright point to all of this where it's like the accessibility of it. Like if I don't have direct access to it, it's not something I should be having all the time because that's not natural to me in my natural setting. But same thing with seasonality. Like I was at the grocery store the other day and there's strawberries out and I'm like, it Mm -hmm. is not May right? Like it is not strawberry picking season. It's, it's straight up January. Okay. We're in the dead of winter. Mm -hmm. This should be the time where we're eating other things. Right. And I'll talk more and more about that in the curiosity corner too, because I'm learning so much about seasonality. And I think we should all really pay attention to what we should be eating based on the time of year that it is. And I think that would, that alone would make such a huge difference. You know, I mean, I'm sure bananas, have a little bit of a season two to them. I don't know if you found anything about that in all of your research, but like maybe there's like a a more prominent banana season where they're not having to use so much of X, Y, and Z where we could purchase within and, you know, think for those certain countries that are well-labeled, well-marked, have more of an organic opportunity to them. I don't know, but regardless... I think- Oh, I think with the bananas, it's like less about like seasonality because it seems like in the tropics, you can kind of just like grow it year round. But what I did find is there's this banana plantation. The name's in Spanish. I can't say it, but it's like translates to like bananas in the forest or something like that. Right. Um, and it was like this example of how you they like use like no pesticides, but they allow like native vegetation they're kind of like growing them in like the setting they would normally grow in the wild so i mean i'm sure that's affecting the scale on which you can grow things or like the consistency maybe of like the appearance but they were showing that you can like successfully grow them in like a natural habitat okay well then there you go i mean there's the evidence right there and again like you just said it would it would definitely decrease the scale which i think is the problem with every single episode the whole reason we created this podcast is the mass scale that the industrial food industry has created and the demand that follows that is like, oh, I can get whatever I want whenever I want it any day of the year. And they have to keep up with that too, you know? So Mm -hmm. it's just, I don't know, it's hard, but I think there's so many replacements. Like we were like, oh, but bananas when we were, you were talking to me before this episode and I was like, gosh, you know, I don't really need to eat bananas. And you're like, but banana bread. And I was like, well, you know, true. And I can make zucchini bread. I can make sweet potato bread. I can make things that I could grow here in my backyard that taste equally as delicious. And yes, I might still every now and then want a banana because it's something that I think we all really enjoy. It's a very popular fruit. Thank you um, to all the people who did that and made that possible. But 
Like I don't need it all the time. So I think, yeah, coming to terms with that. And then also double-edged sword. Like, I feel like I have a hard time saying like, well, don't nobody buy bananas because then it's also like, think of the like societies built upon the economy Mm -hmm. that has been brought forth from these bananas. Like, you know, people get mad at stuff and they're like, don't buy from this. Don't buy from that. And I respect that in a way because it's like, somebody has got to say something and stand up for what they believe in. But at the same time, like, could you imagine the collapse of societies, every single society, including ours and every single person listening to this, if we were to boycott Mm -hmm. all the things that we had a problem with? It's like, I mean, that's also devastating, you know, so it's it's hard. I think it's it comes all back to where is our self-reliability? You know, where's the sustainability in any of this? Like, why are we relying on people in other places doing whatever they want on such a large scale to feed us. I mean, it's wild. Yeah. So my ridiculous like pie in the sto- pie in the sky like dream. Well, I mean, it, you could do it, but it would like it's going to take like a ridiculous amount of like you know, startup and infrastructure to do. But like I want to I want a greenhouse, right? And I want to have like I want to make my own like vanilla bean pods and like bananas. And like which you're like, okay, that's wild, right? But the Cavendish banana that we're all eating was originally like propagated and became a thing in England on this dude Cavendish's property. So like you can do these things in a greenhouse. So it doesn't mean you can never, I mean, this is obviously like a ridiculous suggestion. Like, well, you could just grow it in a greenhouse, but I just think that's kind of a cool thought. Like, I think it'd be neat to like not have to give up these things, but be able to produce it on a more sustainable, like yeah, platform. But anyways, I just thought that was kind of an interesting thought. Um, yeah. Dream of the greenhouse. I have that dream as well. I'm just about to create my own first garden. And I'm like already starting to think about the greenhouse. And I'm like, let's see if I can do outdoor growing first. Let's see. Granted, I will say indoor growing is easier because you don't have as many factors, right? Like the first things I ever grew were inside and on my windowsill. So arguably the greenhouse would probably be easier, but because of the startup costs, I'm like, man, that's going to be yeah. like a I don't know how expensive that's going to be. That is not a today situation. So what can I keep doing in my windowsill and then also plant in the dirt outside seasonally? So yeah, I hear you on that. I'm just going to say on that note, I think we are just in the curiosity corner now. We're not like moving into it. We're like already in the curiosity corner because mine was about like gardening and stuff like that. Like, which I mean, to your point, like I'm like gets four plants starts planning their greenhouse and their like exotic like lemon tree like grove they're gonna have in it or whatever like but and my little like plant identification app I was like let me see what it says about like watering and stuff because terrible at gardening like I'm I'm bad and I was like scanning them I've had them for like two days and they're already like needs work needs work hopefully it's just the the stress of transplantation oh my gosh you can't judge it it just got there it's not even established yet that's a judgy app get rid of it (laughs) I know I think I'm overwatering them but yeah so that's like my my curiosity this week has been I got some herbs and some tomato plants and like Hawaii for the win y'all because I've got tomatoes forming and it's January and I'm pretty excited I can't wait to have tomato plants I'm so jealous but I mean I love that you just started planting stuff I mean when we first started living together years ago it was like I remember you had you had a small garden, but I think I think it was a winter garden, wasn't it? You had no, it um, had just like died. I think right when okay, I like because I think I had started like that year right before like you guys met, and I had like had like terrible outcomes. Like everything got like 
the rot. Like I would get like an eggplant or a squash and I'd be like, yes. And then it would get like the, like, I can't remember what it's called. Some sort of like rot where it connects to the plant and just like shrivel up and die. Um, You also went like super bold though. You were like, I'm going to plant strawberries and all these things that I was like, never would I have ever used that as the first plant. Like I'm going to go with a safe plant, right? Like I'm like, I don't, I, I still have never grown a strawberry because they're so finicky and they're so hard to like, I mean, unless, you know, I've just. I'm terrible at growing strawberries, but I was like, dang, you know, she's like getting into this. And then a couple of weeks and fine, you're like, it's dead. It's all dead. I'm done. <laughs> it was bad. It was not, it was not good, but we're trying again this time. And like, I'm already like, oh, I want to get some more. I'm going to grow potatoes. I'm going to, I'm like, control yourself. Cause this is what I do. I get like way too excited. Then I'm like, I'm going to start with 52 different plants. I have oh no idea what I'm doing No. So I'm trying, I'm like, if I can prove that I can keep these herbs and these tomatoes alive. And like, and I'm just like loving it. Like all the fresh herbs in my dinner every day. I'm like, yeah, let's get these. Like, but if I can do that, then I'll expand. Yeah. So that was my curiosity this week. I'm here in the dead of winter. So jealous that you have fresh herbs right now. I was just looking at my herb garden outside and I'm like, oh, I can't wait for springtime. Like, it's so funny because by the end of summer, this past year was the first time I had like a true garden. I was exhausted. I was like, just die. <laughs> Just die already, you little plant. I had it for so long and my tomatoes started turning in October. I was like, what is happening? This is insane. I don't want to keep tending to you. Oh my gosh, they took forever. And then, you know, now here I am and I'm like, it. we just hit January and I'm like, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> I'm seeing you plant. I'm like, oh, I want to plant too. I'm so jealous. Uh, fr- nothing like fresh herbs. That alone, like I would have a fresh herb garden if I was going to pick one thing. They're just so good. Well, like one pro of it being the dead of winter there. So like the mosquitoes are like insane right now here. And then the soil I got, hopefully this doesn't mean it's like bad tainted soil and everything's going to die. So all you gardeners listening who are just like, oh, you poor deer. Uh, I don't know. But like I opened these bags and they had gotten like, I guess, super wet being outside at the garden center or whatever. And I got like so many mosquitoes came out of them. I was like attacked by, I swear it came out of like the soil bags because it was only when I was doing that and I got attacked by like 52,000 mosquitoes while planting these things. I have like such a disdain for packaged soil at outdoor depots because it's like you like accessibility. Like I feel like I have to go there sometimes, even if you're just like, oh, I get all my soil composted, truckloaded to me and did No, sometimes you're going to need to go buy a soil. Like that's just going to happen. Like if you're growing anything, like I, I mean, I'm living on top of clay. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's mm-hmm. a big regular and you're right. Like you go to open it and mosquitoes. Yes. I've had that. I've had gnats before. And then I also opened a bag one time and it was molded because they just left oh. it outside wrapped in plastic, sun beaming down on in the dead of summer. And it was just, it was just like so happy and moldy. I had to like spread it all out and like dry it, spray it with some neem oil and some other things. And I was like, please don't kill my grass. And it ended up, you know, recovering from it and getting rid of the mold and all those things. But I was like, this is so frustrating. I couldn't even use that for my garden. Like, ugh, so many things. Buying things on a large scale, guys. Hence why I'm getting into composting. (laughs) Have not been successful yet. (laughs) <laughs> is that your curiosity for the week you're composting? It's not. My composting similar to yours. I It's January. So I'm like, yes, garden planning, which I've already been doing because we're about to transform 
these two raised beds that I got last year that I was quite successful with. So I proved that I'm very excited about gardening. And my husband and I were like, let's do it. Let's get like six raised beds so we can like put some like, you know, really cut the cost on produce and stuff. We eat so much fruits and vegetables. And I was like, I'm ready. So we're planning our garden right now. we got the grid paper. Like we're going in. You guys will see it. We're going to definitely post it on our Instagram. I don't know how beautiful it'll be. It's like, this is very simple and basic. Um, I have a, I have a decent sized backyard, but I'm, we're trying to scale it down. So, you know, we can fit as much in at a time as we possibly can. And last year I went to the store and I bought vegetables. I just like went to the store and like bought them already in the container and whatever, which is easier. And I was like, this is my first garden. That's what I'm going to do. And I, I encourage everyone to do that. I think that's what you did too, right? You just kind of like bought the plant already kind of established and transplanted it. Yeah. 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 In the past I had tried seeds and stuff this time. I was like, I'm just going to get like seedlings. So I just went with the seedling route. And there's probably still a couple plants that I have on my list that I'm going to still do that with because I don't have experience with that plant yet, you know? Um, but this year I got very brave and I said, I am going to get some seeds. Okay. Because it is so much more affordable. Like if I can grow from a seed, I'm, I'm chilling over here, right? Like the grocery store is going to be a once in a while kind of situation because I mean, they're so much more affordable. You get thousands and thousands and thousands of seeds in this tiny little packet. And it's like $2.99. And I'm like, what? Are you kidding? <laughs> like I just bought one of those plants and it was far more expensive than that. So anyway, I went online, did some research, and I ended up finding a company that I was like, I was really excited about. I felt like they were really transparent about everything I was getting in my seed packaging. And it's called True Leaf Market. Um mm-hmm. It's like an online seed warehouse, essentially. And it's really nicely organized. Really, really cute. The um, confirmation email that you get, it's like, word of your order is spreading like wildfire among the seeds here at the True Leaf Market (laughs) Warehouse. The seeds are beyond excited at the possibility that they might get adopted and sent to you. And like, it's just so stinking cute, the whole thing. I was like, oh my God, my heart. Anyway, I bought a lot of different things. I, you guys will see it, but I got a seed assortment that's like medicinal and tea herbs. Um, huge wide assortment of like herbs that I don't already have established in my garden. So I'm really excited about that. And then I got wildflower seeds of two kinds. One is a bee mix. We talked about, you know, uh, we did a honey episode previously and we talked a lot about the bees and I was like, I feel like I need to support this. And then also I got a wildflower seed mix that's hummingbird and butterfly pollinators. So I'm really excited about that too. Um, and then I got just like a microgreens pack. I'm going to attempt to grow some of those inside my house because I feel like there's a lot of people that I know that are trying to get into this world, but they're like, I live in an apartment. I'm like, I lived in an apartment for, you know eight years before I moved into the house I'm in now, actually longer than that, 10 years. And that was the first place I ever planted anything. And so I'm going to attempt to grow some microgreens indoors with some grow lights and see if there's a way we can like encourage people to do the same. Um, mm-hmm. cause that's super sustainable. Um, and then I got a couple other seasonal wintertime vegetables that I'm like super excited to try. Um, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, carrot, celery, kale, and lettuce seeds. Um, and I mostly just bought things that I couldn't get the seed myself. Like sometimes I'll like buy something from the store organic, keep those seeds, or I grew something last year in the garden. I can keep those seeds and preserve Mm -hmm. them myself and grow from that. But these were all plants that I was like, oh my gosh, where do the seeds come from? Yeah. Like, yeah, I I don't know where broccoli seed is. (laughs) 
Yeah, right? Like I was like, I've never seen a broccoli seed. Apparently you have to like grow it the whole season and then it bolts and it creates like a flower and then you you pick from that flower. But I was like, okay, cool. So I'm going to start with those, see how it goes. Um, I've never grown from seed, so I'm a little nervous. That's not true. I did grow from seed last year, but it was like one of those indoor um, – it was a gift, those arrow gardens that mm-hmm. you can like, you know, use the hydroponic system to get your seeds started yeah. before you transplant them into the soil. So, um, but that was like done for me. <laughs> this is going to be the yeah. first time. Yeah. Like this will be the first time where I'm like, okay, let's see. Let's see if I can like, you know, walk the walk a little bit. So who knows? <laughs> it's kind of fun. Like when I did it, like some of them, they said to like start inside. So I had these like mushroom containers and I put dirt and I had them in the windowsill. And like, it's so exciting when they fi- first sprout. You're like, ooh, look at my little, little life I'm bringing forth. <laughs> right? Like how cool is that? I, it's like also just so crazy. I'm like, we're so far removed from this. I'm like, <laughs> why? Like it is, it's so cool. But I feel like I'm back in school where it was like, let's learn how to germinate a seed. We became so removed from mm-hmm. the system that I'm like, yeah, it's like really exciting, really cool. I can't wait to watch stuff grow. I hope it does. I mean, who knows, you know? Well, I'm sure you'll get at least like some of it. Um, yeah, that's my hope. But yeah, I mean, it's fun. And I'm like the herbs I'm really excited about. Like, and I want more like tea kind of stuff too. Cause like, like I have been doing like lemon balm and mixing it with my green tea. And it's like, it's been so delicious. And I think part of it is like, I'm like, ooh, I grew this. Granted, like, honestly, like, the nursery grew it and I just like stuck it in the dirt two days ago. But in my mind, I'm like, I grew this. This is exciting. Get to go out and harvest it. And like, I don't know. It's just, it's a very exciting. Yeah. It's so exciting. No, I totally feel that too. And yeah, that's why I like, I've, I've successfully grown for several years now. Like I feel like the basis of herbs, it's like rosemary, a bunch of different types of thyme, like those more resistant ones. And then I started picking up mint, parsley, oregano, sage. Um, Chives are really fun. Apparently they're like Mm -hmm. year round, which I didn't know. Um, Then I was like, you're right. Like I drink a lot of tea and I do put, I mean, it's really great for you to drink like parsley in your tea and basil in your tea. And I mean, everything else we just talked about. But I will say that there's other types of teas that I love and that I drink that I'm like, I don't have this at my disposal. So that's why I got the medicinal pack. And it's going to have like all kinds of stuff in there, like calendula and like all these other things, dandelion that, you know, dandelion I could just grow in my yard, but we're essentially (laughs) eradicating the weeds because they don't look pretty. But that's neither here nor there. So yeah, really excited. I'll let you know how it goes. If it works out well, I'll just send you some seeds in the mail. And you can just grow some herbs. It'll probably be like immediately seized by like the USDA. Hawaii is like really weird about importing. I'd be like, sorry, you don't get you don't get this. And I'd be like, oh man, is that importing we'll like, on, to Hawaii? Oh no, we'll be on like on an episode of Smugglers. They'll be like, oh. <laughs> I know I just put it in like a regular envelope and there's just like seeds floating in the bottom of like where the letter is. I'm like, I didn't even want to like package them. I don't want them to notice. They're like shifting. You can like hear it in the envelope. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's no way that arrives. It's like immediately detained. (laughs) Darn. Okay, next time you visit then, maybe. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, anything else for today? I think that's it. This was a good one. All right. Well, tell everybody where they can find us. Hey, guys. We wanted to take a moment to thank everyone for tuning in. We truly appreciate your support and feedback. We encourage you to reach out with any suggestions for future topics, with questions, or requests for clarifications. If you're enjoying the podcast, give us a rate and a review. If you're 
not enjoying it, give us your feedback, but maybe skip the review. Give us a follow on Instagram at the hand that feeds us or send us an email at hand that feeds us at gmail.com and keep tuning in. You can listen to us wherever you find your podcasts.